listen carefully. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, your host. And this week we have a very dynamic guest. I know from having interviewed him in the past, it's Justin Merrick, who is the executive director of Center for Transforming Communities. And last time I I interviewed him on a podcast, he sang. So I don't know if, if I can promise that, but he's always a great interview. So Justin, welcome to Thank Memphis you. Metropolis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Feels good to be here. So um, today I, wa- I really want to talk about uh, Center for Transforming Communities does a lot of work in community engagement, community organizing, and uh, having done and do some of that work myself, um, of course, there's been a lot of discussions about the impact of COVID on that. And that's what I want to talk about today. But really, let's start off just, I am you know, feel like I'm very familiar with Center for Transforming Communities and its work, but members of the audience may not be. So just yeah. tell us what you're all about and um, where you work and... Um, what what the what your you know I want to say the mission I I hate sort of mission statements but I know that you have yeah. uh, a, you know a very heart based uh, community focus so so tell tell us about that yep um I guess I, I would lean in to say yeah our our mission is cultivating neighborhood democracy and what that means I think is really a conversation around equity and making sure that we help to support that there's an authentic voice um, and what started off I think as conversations centered in community development have really evolved into multiple sectors because largely there's a very strident history you know around race in, in, in Memphis and and when we talk about equity often when we get to the root of it it is it's connected to race as as well. And so a big part of our work, I look at it as like a nonprofit social equity firm or, you know, or so, you know, something like that, that allows for us to work both on the systems level and on the ground in terms of organizing um, in neighborhoods. So it's a place based approach. And I think since the last time that you and I spoke, because that was probably before COVID. Um, yeah, we, we've grown considerably. So we we our we are centered in in the heart. Well, maybe not the heart of Binghampton, but we are in 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 Binghampton. In um, a really cool in a really cool space. Yeah, it's called the Commons, um, and it is a church that has been reno- renovated. Um, where we have multiple partners, church partners, the Refugee Empowerment Program is probably our anchor partner. Um, um, the Memphis School of Servant Leadership and and art. We have a couple of artists and residents, and so it is a bustling place. Even um, during COVID, right? Even during shutdown time, <laughs> it still uh, is a a center that really supports uh, the neighborhoods in, in multiple ways. And we have multiple church partners as well that share share the space. Um, we are we've expanded Emily and scaled our work to where we're not just in Binghampton, um, but where we're really taking a citywide approach. 
I would also say that a big part of our work is how do we build health and wealth in black and brown communities, um, which meant that we centered around gentrification and what it looked like to do anti-displacement efforts, which meant that we were within the 240 belt loop. And so now we are in neighborhoods being Hampton, Orange Mound, White Haven, uh, the medical district or improper, you know, Dick, Dick, Dixie homes, um, Douglas, Douglas, Hollywood Heights, uh, uptown Bearwater, Bigford, South Memphis, which was, was really Riverside, um, and, um, South city area in Soulsville. So, and the we, great thing about that work is, you know, you have, and maybe you were going to say this, you know, you've got someone in each of those neighborhoods yeah. on the ground. Yep. And that's just not, uh, that model is ideal, but it's not achievable a lot of times. And you guys have been able to really put someone and they're called connectors, which is yep. so great. Yep. Yeah. Um, um, you're right. It is a model that is hard to sustain, which means we've had to have several uh, revenue streams to come in, but we have a full-time connector organizer on the ground helping to connect resources in the community, connect organizations to help form neighborhood collaboratives. And that's where the neighborhood democracy piece comes. Like, how do we share power? How do we work collaboratively with one another? How do we have deep conversations around race? But how do we also um, have conversations around what it looks like to create impact? Like that, I, you know, that has been a, a whirlwind too. Like, what to what end are we doing? Like, wh- why are we in the work? Why are we doing the work that we're doing? And to what end do we want to support it? And that's why I ultimately talk about building wealth and health. Because at the end of the day, if what we want to do in terms of transforming communities, it's really about making sure that there's beyond access, but there's ownership, right? And, and that there's wealth actually accruing in the neighborhoods that we're serving. Well, and so um, I wanted to... And I want to get, I do, I do get into the weeds on the show some, <laughs> and um, I don't think I'll have to, I have a, a bell I ring when there's too much jargon. I don't think we'll have to do that today. Okay. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit about, uh, this is a little bit of a digression, but I think I told you I was going to ask you this. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, community engagement and community organizing and yeah. the differences between them, because I think, um, I mean, I've got a lot of experience in community engagement, not really in organizing around issues. And I just think it's, it's a little academic for, yep. for, for, um, for people. But I think I personally think it's an important distinction. I know you guys probably do both. So just briefly, just talk about the difference between those two things. Yep. So I, I, I would first say that I would qualify a distinction between community outreach, community engagement first, like outreach to me often is where organizations and institutions uh, want to share, like a hospital system wants to share about the, you know, the programming that they're doing. Right. And the, or a lot of, a lot of government really. Yes. It's one, it's one way. Yes. Yes. They yes. say it's not, but, but sometimes it's one way. Yes. And, and I think it's, it's always well intentioned and it, doesn't necessarily mean that it's meeting the needs or the priorities that a community has set. Um, and so there should be a space for, for both. Community engagement, uh, I would say, is where you are taking it a step further to uh, listen to the needs of the community and hear and help them to set priorities. And then I would say community organizing, um, I think, forms out of like a social justice acumen where 
you can do engagement, but it needs to also be informed by this concept of power, right? And and that there's some analysis around that. If it's racial equity, if it's just a power, like if it's class, you know, about class, but where there's organizing so that folks understand where their blind spots are. I think that's most important. The things that they do not see in the conversation and that they then know that they can't speak into a lived experience that they don't have, which means that organizing is really about centering whatever community that you're targeting, that the folks that have that lived experience are are leading that work. Well, and I, I mean, to me, that's always been the distinction in my mind is that in community engagement, you've probably are already, and certainly this is the case for the work I've done, you're engaging around a topic, yep. you know, it's pedestrian access. And even if it's genuine engagement, you're already, you're already, for the most part, engaging but in my mind, in organizing, you're not coming in with the topic. You are coming in, and then the community is setting the agenda. And you may want to do pedestrian access as the organizer, yep. but if but if food access, I mean, um, in, in anyway, in my mind, that's why. Um, and it's hard. I mean, the organizing it's hard to secure resources for it, as you. Um, as you indicated, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, I admire what you guys have done because it's um, really, there is no one else, unlike community engagement and community outreach, there is no one really in the community doing organizing um, at the neighborhood level, except for Center for Transforming Communities. Well, I, I, yes. And I, there's yes. And that's a yes. And I would say that CTC, is really working on scaling what that looks like in neighborhoods so that neighborhood collaboratives can emerge and folks can still say what it is and that they want and, and can be centered in that. I would also say that I feel like there's this history around organizing that in some circles, right, becomes an antagonistic space and in others. So how we lean into the conversation around organizing is that we are helping to align the voice between residents and institutions and encouraging. And when we say authentic voice, that often means when we say authentic, that there could be forms of tension, right? Because people are actually speaking their truth that may not necessarily move in the space of where mainstream or dominant culture, right, would 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 suggest in terms of priorities. And so what we want to encourage is like, how do we create a table for those conversations uh, where we bring power brokers, power influencers, right? Influencers, decision makers to the table with residential influencers and power brokers um, to grapple, to grapple with like what priorities this area needs and like who gets to make those decisions. And that is lofty. That's lofty. And that, that can be arduous, especially if you're doing it in a way where and this is the other piece that, that we haven't even taken the organizing even a step further, but there's got to be a healing component, you know, folks feeling heard. And, and and we believe that that comes through a lot of the artistic outlets that we want to try to provide where an authentic voice exists and it offers reprieve for those, you know, that are there to, to view, to really reflect and analyze what they're, how, how they relate to what's being said. We're still in, we're still developing that, but yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I'm sure there's challenges with teeing up those conversations so the so the power brokers are know what's coming. Yep. Um and I mean both sides both all the different stakeholders know what's come but also it it re- requires skilled facilitation and and acknowledgement of the the legacy of hurt and the need for healing. I just it's it's 
I got to tell you, people, this is hard work. <laughs> it is. And I will say that. So the, the other piece that I think uh, why our work is important, critical, not only just to Memphis, but why Memphis is, I feel like, critical to the nation is because we also, you know, our historical assessment, King, all of those things. And I feel like folks always lean into that conversation and say there's a haze, right? We hear all of these things. But the reality is, and it's a national conversation, is that we really don't have a lot of spaces that are really getting down to the roots. Like we, we deal a lot with symptoms, which means that in many ways, you, you know, Again, I think outreach is is healthy, but it, it sometimes it's symptomatic and it's not getting down to the root of where the challenges are. And the invitation that CTC wants to continue to put out there like as a cadence, as a drumbeat, as a, as a rhythm, as something that's constant, is how do we dive into these deeper conversations and how do we have grace? How do we have magnanimity? And how do we have a sense of reprieve that allows for us to really grapple with the challenges that often go over our heads on a, on a day to day? Well, because it's hard and uncomfortable. Yep. I mean, um, yes. it and and part of times it's you're you're keeping it at the superficial symbolic level for a reason yep. because yes, you know, a lot of us have trouble going there. Yep. I mean, yep. honestly. Yep. And the last that's become you know very apparent the last couple of years in particular. So I would I I, I appreciate you even opening the conversation up, Emily, and con- because. It's one of those things where I don't know if there's a prescribed way, but there's just uh, what we're driving towards is like, how do we start to create that commitment? And what that means is that it's got to be long term because we can't just jump. We can't just jump in and expect immediate results like this is something. And this is one of the reasons this is why I came to CTC in the first place. It's relational. It truly, truly, truly is relational. Right. Where and 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 in. And in a Memphis, city like Memphis, where we say it all the time, like on Sundays is where we're most <laughs> divided. Like, where do we start to find that relationship where you see a black man and a white woman, you know, and we understand that race is, you know, uh, is more than, you know, just black and white, that it's it's it's, it's not just that. But where we find um, that those conversations do not happen. They don't happen at dinner hours. They don't. And it's heavy. It's heavy material. So. That's a big part as to why we want to introduce it in a way that people have always received it. And that's where I end up going into song because in communities of color, like I know the one that I, I don't remember what I sang last time, but I always reference uh, Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay. Like everybody listens to that, so, you know, uh, and and they listen to it for what the words are saying and then others listen to for what it means because he goes into the bridge and that's what I always share. It looks like nothing's ever going to change. Looks like nothing's ever going to change. Things will remain the same. But there's always been this social justice, this double consciousness, this double and, and music, specifically in music of color. But that's art. Any art that came out of communities of color, it was that. And so how do we allow for things to be synthesized in a way where we offer a package that can then be unpacked? But that means we have to have the audience there to unpack it. But that to me is the solution. And it's and it's and it costs. There's it's money, it, it's gonna take resources to be able to build up that type of conversation in the Memphis community in a way where folks can really nibble at it and and internalize, you know, some of the things that we're offering. And it's gotta be for the long term. It can't just be, you know, you get a grant for two years and you go into Douglas and do the work. And yeah. I mean, which I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but yeah. but it's but it's but it's 
it's got to be 20 years. Yep. It's got to be coupled. It's got to be comprehensive. Go into Douglas for two years, but then how are we connecting those dots to a four-year, six-year, eight-year, 12-year trajectory? That way, everybody's working towards the same thing. It's lo- it is short-term and long-term simultaneously. Okay, so let's talk about COVID. But before that, I uh, just want to remind everyone, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to Justin Merrick from Center for Transforming Communities. So Justin, I want to talk about COVID because COVID had a huge impact. I mean, so much of community organizing and community engagement is being out in the community community meetings and, or just informal. I mean, you guys have a great international festival. And I mean, a lot of the work I do is just kind of hanging out places, meeting people, talking to them, but also it's, you know, public meetings the government does. And, um, and so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, I guess my, my impression having thought about it and read about it is that, um, is that COVID both, you know, created barriers for people because, of course, there's digital divide issues, but also I've sort of become aware of the fact that, you know, on some level, more people can participate now because they don't have to, you know, get in the car, get in the bus, go to the library. So it seems to me it's been kind of a curse and a blessing. So how does, how CTC approached it? And yeah. am I crazy in thinking that? I mean, what, I'm, that's about seven questions and I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, yeah, so I would, so one, COVID has been very challenging. Uh, and I think it's shown us where our gaps are, like the systems, like, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, we had a church that was collecting all of this food and collected it. And then a good portion of it went bad. And it, that was the eye opening experience that like, whoa, we don't have the relationship to actually get this to the places that need it. Wow. And we want to collect the resources and we're doing it. And that was happening all over the city where it was folks. And it was just showing us where these where these gaps were. That's what I really think allowed for CTC to grow. Because these were things that we had been nudging and saying relationship and trust building. and right. Because even now, when we look at COVID now, we I, I forget, uh, but I was... Um, recently on a, on a call with, with the city and, and they've made great strides right towards helping to support trust, well, support access and education um, when it comes to COVID so that people can make their own decisions. And I said it, said it that way because I think it's important to frame that way because when you frame it that way, we are honoring the history around, you know, vaccinations and, right. and 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 what the lineage has been in regards to communities of color and how it's been very harmful. And so what we want to do is uh, CTC's approach. I won't, you know, prescribe or ascribe to what others should do, but CTC's approach in it is that we want to arm people with the knowledge, right, so that they can lean in to make those decisions for themselves, which is a trust building exercise, which is what CTC has been saying from, you know, our touches and gauges. It's not just a five minute, you know, meeting. This is an hour where the connector's sitting down with people. Um, and sometimes it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, right? But where we're actually doing relationship to build trust. But COVID, you know, uh, has shown us where the gaps are. And I think it's also now showing us where there's some opportunities. 
Uh, technology is something that's big that has come out, like the access to internet. I, I mean, when we are working in spaces that are highly vulnerable, um, part of that vulnerability it extends into a virtual space where there's just not access to the hardware, right? There's not access to to the internet, actually, to, to do it. And so it makes communication very challenging, which means that we had to rely on an old school system of communication, right? Folks didn't have internet. That meant it was door to door. And some of the same things that values that we were holding up became the relevant and the only way really to, to implement it. So now we're in this space where 50 percent, you know, where I don't know the exact statistic, but where we still have some ground to cover. And what we're finding is it's not necessarily putting it on billboards. Right. And saying get a vaccination. It is trust like there are a lot of stories and horror stories at that um, in the community and communities, particularly of color, as to how we've been taken advantage of. And we need to sit and listen to those stories first before we can even think about moving to an action plan, which is, again, why this has to be long term. We should assume not because we want it, but that there's going to be another crisis in our future in the next 50 years. And the resources that Memphis puts into infrastructures like a CTC. I I lift up an REP. Uh, While they are a building partner, they are a whole body of work uh, uh, that exists. Um, And there's a lot of lessons to even learn in that space as well. But Refugee Empowerment Program, right? Yep. Yes. So, I mean, so Kamala Eccles is doing some phenomenal work there because that's uh, that's one of the communities that was very vulnerable, right? So not only is there a virtual technology barrier, but there's a language barrier in many spaces. Well, and they really stepped up big time to help the kids they work with. So, but but I and I attended um occasionally I'm on the email list for the North Memphis Voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, probably because I know the organizers up there. So I've attended a few of those meetings. Yeah. And um, and I've been blown away by the turnout. I mean, I don't like, I mean, I'll do, actually have come to like sort of Zoom one-on-one as opposed yep. to phone calls, but like those kind of meetings, big meetings, I uh, avoid them. I just don't enjoy them. And I was blown away by the turnout and I, because th- it's hard to get people out at community meetings that I thought, you know, this is probably easier for some people than to go to the physical meeting um, that's what sort of made me think that maybe this is an opportunity to get more people um, engaged. Yep. So it has been. So once we were able to, you know, do the capacity building to make sure that there was access, make sure that we had communication going up, our numbers actually started to increase in terms of our attendance and community meetings. Both that's the, amazing. Yeah. Both the, so we have our like Douglas and Hollywood and Heist, they all meet separately, but then we come together as North Memphis Voice as well. And our biggest challenge, and this, but this is a, a much deeper challenge. This is where I was talking at, about the beginning, the arts integration. I would love for our meeting spaces to be centered on joy. Like, what does it really mean to have black joy, to have brown joy? Because meetings so often are are taxing and they're heavy, and they don't have to be. They, they're all they're all business. There's yes. the agenda. You're working the agenda. Yes, and I really want to step. Away. We, like we've been working on that, and so COVID, we were doing. So we had all of these things where we were organizing through a choir. I mean, we had organized all of these things before COVID, and then COVID happened. So we had to re reshift. But we are starting to figure out even what that looks like in a virtual space. So it doesn't have to be 
Well, what know, does it what does it look like? I mean, is it just the choir's on and there's I mean, we've all seen those sort of um those sort of Zoom concerts where yep. all of the all the the violin and the bass player and the trumpet player are all coordinated. Um in uh how what are some ways you're you're making it or is it just people coming in and singing or yep i have one particular no so it's not just folks coming in and singing i would say that we've been using culture as a way to synthesize and capture information so if it's visual arts facilitation the minutes that go out is actually pictures that oh great that that is and so we haven't had the resources to do that in all of our neighborhoods right so we some of it is like playing in the space of innovation and, and emerging practices but I mean, it it archives it in a different way where it's actually fun. And so then a, a symbol is a story, right? And so when the example that I'll give, let me do it even through a, a music lens, is that instead of us using Robert's rules of orders in, in, in a meeting, uh, it took a while to build this out. But before every meeting and after every meeting, we developed a song list. Uh, but that song list was informed by what are you feeling in this moment based off of what happened and what song reflects that? And so then there were stories then attached to that. Like they're, they're, when people selected their song, they were doing it based off the experience. So the example I get is, nah, if you buck, right? If that was something, <laughs> you know, that was a song that came up, that was the way to start archiving the meeting. And so it wasn't so much about putting it all on paper, which is the written tradition. It was also that there's an oral tradition to it. So that when we open up the next meeting and we say, what was the song list? Number one, we're playing that as people come in, right? Uh, and so that, but then we say, yo, did you hear this song that was playing? Like, oh, uh, Z, do you mind sharing uh, what, what the story was behind that? That's the way of recapturing minutes. Oh, like, wow. That's yeah, amazing. And, Yes, and it and it changes the entire mood of a meeting, opposed to having to go write it down or go read something. It's the culture, and that we want to really be able to entice or influence the culture of the organizations and how we relate and see the, each other's humanity from the beginning of the meeting. Banning the flip chart, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That is great. The flip I'm chart, good. the flip chart is still there, but we use it now to do visual arts. So it, so we will tell, create pictures to share the same story. And let me say, this is not necessarily a replacement of like the minutes as well, but it is a way that allows for us to allow for the community to own it because it's their stories. So you literally can put in the minutes. Well, this was. Uh, Brother Z's, you know, story. Well, plus it just is more fun. I mean, that's one of the challenges, certainly in the planning and development arena that I'm the most familiar with and the show deals with. A lot of this material is dry. Yeah. And um, and so, you, you know, no wonder people don't want to go meaning t talking about, you know, zoning, which is incredibly important, yep. but um, it just makes it, um, and not to say fun in sort of a demeaning way, it just yep. makes it more, a more, a better experience. Yep. We would say it makes it a, a holistic experience. And honestly, when we center the storytelling, it, it opens the pathway for it to be a healing experience. So if we were to take a zoning, you know, conversation, we would want to capture the stories around zoning, right? That inform that, which is a pre-process that allows for people to come knowing that they're going to tee up some of that. Right. And then what comes out of that? What is synthesized out of a, that repository or, you know, a series of stories on zoning? What do we create out of that for the next meeting? Uh, it's a, it's a comprehensive process. And what we're finding out as we engage partners 
<laughs> like we have a long list of of line items that end up, you know, honestly, if you want if you want this to be something that's holistic, it costs at the end of the day. And this is part of what sustaining looks like. And the, the other thing that I will say, Emily, is this has been learning for me because, you you know, as, as a black man, I, and I tend to throw these things out very trans, transparently, you know, I it is a different experience being in an organization of people of color than it is of people that are not of color, of white people um, and what that experience is. And I think there's different supports that are needed for both of those spaces. And so I think we need to start having intentional conversations around the value systems of those and what supports are needed so that we can actually bridge communities together. Like there's a lot of thing, you know, just to so that white people do not understand, right, about communities of color. That's okay. That is okay. Yep, that's for How sure. How are we having those conversations? And there are things that people of color don't have access to in some of these others. Like, how do we start bridging those gaps and having intentional and truthful conversations? And how do we allow for us to lead from a space of humility to maybe think that there are things that we don't see? And so I'm constantly learning every day from my staff and team as to things that I can shift even with my own self. Um, and and that's the power. That's the power, you know, of what we're really trying to build. Well, even though there's a lot of, um, you know, um, artistic cultural traditions and communities of color, a lot of these tactics you're talking about would work really well in white spaces, would improve community engagement, yes. organizing yes. across the board. I yes. mean, I can tell you, you yes. know, as a person that occupies those spaces, <laughs> I would that would be welcome. Yep. So I agree. I, I see it. Because so culture is a type of thing that 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 should be transcended, right? right. It, it it really can be in any space. Yes. Right. So has the um, I mean, it's you talked about vaccinations, but I'm sort of wondering in your organizing, aside from sort of the very urgent issues like vaccination and testing, has has the the organizing work what has come out of that different because of COVID? I'm thinking about, you know, community infrastructure issues that people weren't talking about as much before, but are now because of COVID have, have been lifted up. Yep. I will say, let me say it this way. There are things that I think are more prevalent now because of it. I can't say that they weren't happening before. It's kind of like one of those things. If, if a tree falls in a forest, but you're not there to hear it, like, I can't say that those weren't happening. Um, but it's become more prevalent and it's mental health. Like I think COVID has opened this and I I think it's beautiful, like behavioral health, like how are we showing up physically? How are we showing up mentally? How are we showing up spiritually? Like these were things that because we were isolated, we had to figure out for ourselves. And uh, what I find is that people are more open to what restorative practices look like because we felt that isolation and it's no longer sympathizing, but empathizing, right, with what that looks like. And I think people are just opening opening to like emergent practices, which is a beautiful thing. So I would, yes, mental health. Oh, gosh. I've heard that. I've heard that a lot. And, um, and I think also, and I don't know necessarily from the from in terms of your neighborhood organizing, but for sure, I think it's the conversation about um, about access to internet infrastructure. That is a much bigger and louder conversation from anywhere from the local to the federal level than we've. I mean, these issues have been around forever, and um, that's getting a lot more attention now. I think because of COVID, that is a tangible deliverable. 
that's why. So again, when we start talking in in this space as to like even, you know, because there's lots of different types of organizing. You have the Arlinsky model that I think is really policy driven that I feel like has more of a linear path, and then you have some of like the cultural organizing that I think is much more cyclical, uh, healing, spiritual, like all of that. Um, and and so internet provides something that people can see, they can hold, they can touch right away and say, oh, people don't have that. How do we provide? Um, and it really is an equity issue. Like to me, it is a, a new movement in itself. It is one of those spaces from a workforce development where you don't have to have a college degree to be able to enter then into middle class America. The thing that I challenge about about that is that I, I'm I'm all for those conversations, and I would love to see where we th- th- we again. I think sometimes those conversations skip over some of the very important parts of the conversation around the value system. And the example that I'll give through the lens of community development is gentrification. And we look at the word gentry, right? And we know that that's a route from middle class, upper class, right? And it means that we are evolving neighborhood spaces into a middle class value system or upper class value system, which means right away we negate working class value systems or or it's put in a negative space. Quite honestly, and for those who have had the opportunity to to travel, especially like to the global south, every time, if it's to the Caribbean islands, if it's to South America, if it's to Africa, right, they always say, if there's something that was special, almost on a spiritual level, you know, that that happens. And that's because I think there's a certain value system within working class America or working class across the world. And that's how people collectively work with each other. You, you don't go on a bus in the middle of Uganda, right, and have a banana and not expect to share it with everybody. It's the same thing where you in the middle of Memphis are trying to get to your job or what if it is a warehouse, if it is wherever it is, and you don't have access to transportation, but you need to make it, you're going to call on your neighbor and knock on their door. Whereas in middle class and upper class America, sometimes what we see is people sharing the same driveways that don't even speak to each other not daily, not weekly, not monthly, but on an annual basis. And so we we have this space where there's not connectivity, but people are literally right next to each other and adjacent. But those are that's a values conversation that yes, us challenging and tackling internet and us making sure that there's access is going to allow for there to be some shifts, but the value system is not allowing for there to actually be relational things that actually allows for there to be transformative practices. You mean the you mean um okay, so what you're saying is the 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 technology is important, but it but it um, if it if it diminishes the the in person communications that are very important at the neighborhood level, then um, there's got to be balance there. Am I am I I'm probably simplifying what you're no, saying? That's, but that's it. And and I'm also saying that for many people, our north star when we look at what success is has been predetermined by a certain narrative. And what I'm saying is in working in working class America, when you're working to fight spaces of poverty, we always think of poverty as such a negative thing. And there are, when you look at asset-based community development, there are a lot of beautiful things that folks in middle-class America and in wealthy spaces don't even know how to acknowledge actually. And because of the way that we organize we don't stumble upon what those things are to even challenge what transformation looks like in spaces of privilege. And it is how people work together and how they relate. 
And so while we can have policy changes, we won't have practice changes that allow for equity to actually be embodied institutionally, organizationally, because we are still working towards a North Star that may not necessarily be real. Okay. Realistic. Okay. There's a lot to think about there. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Seriously. So last question. Um, I mean, I guess, do you think that your work, community organizing, community engagement, has that, I mean, speaking from CDC's perspective, but also even, you know, other people that do the work from government, public media, do you think that's changed for good and that we will now see, you know, different ways to connect to me, to organize, um, or do you think it's going to, it'll be back to sort of business as usual? You know, I'm now, you know, every, uh, my staff, my peers, everybody says, Justin, you're such uh, an, an optimist. Um, well, you no, are. That's I, one of the, that's one of the things I like about you. Cause you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you are a very upbeat person and it yeah. carries over into the work. Yeah. I, I, I am optimistic and hopeful that, I mean, I have to just go off of what my pattern of what I've seen. CTC has grown. CTC is working on sustaining itself, and we've had a lot of response. And so I think that people are ready for something new and something different. And when I look at the history, like even if we look at 50 MLK in the past 50 years, when we start to unpack that, I think a lot of us can say that it's time for us to try something that might be an emerging practice. And so I remain hopeful and I remain really thankful, you know, Emily, and I have to say that even opportunities like, like this, because... I, you know, never had a platform, you know, where I really had the ability to to lift these things up. And I'm just thankful that there's responsiveness to it and a willingness and an open ear, uh, because I think a lot of the things that we're starting to tap into, it's going to be slow work, but it's the things that I think will help to change us for good. And you think that that COVID has has brought some of that on. Oh, absolutely. I think COVID has informed our abilities to be able to perceive and understand what that is. Well, this has been a really great conversation. And and I've got a a bunch of other subjects I want to have you back on to talk about in the future. So, because there's just a lot in this space. I mean, you you referenced asset-based community development, which is, um, um, I mean, on some level, it's the term's a little self-explanatory yeah. um, at focusing on assets and liabilities in a community. Uh, assets as opposed to liabilities, as opposed to, you know, poor neighborhoods are bad. I mean, yep. of course, and of course, the, a lot of the work I do is around that, but but that would be a whole interesting separate conversation to sort of just talk a little bit more about how that, how that plays out in your work and in Memphis. So we'll, we'll put that on the calendar. For some point, some, sometime in 2022. So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Justin Merrick, who's the executive director of Center for Transforming Communities. We've been talking about all kinds of things, community organizing, community engagement, and in particular on the impact of COVID on that work in the in the present and then looking long-term into the future. So Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for staying close. Appreciate it. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. 
And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to the second half of Memphis Metropolis. This part of the show, we're talking with Cole Bradley. Cole's our resident anthropologist and one of our regular commentators. And Cole, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Emily, for having me back. I'm glad to be here. So, Cole, I, you know, the first half of the show was an interview with Justin Merrick. And at the beginning of that interview, I talked about how the, you know, the last time I had interviewed him on a podcast, <laughs> he sang. And actually, you and I together interviewed him. And of course, he's j- just a wonderful interview and very engaging. But you probably remember that. Um, I sure probably- do. As an individual who also pretty consistently walks around with a song in my heart and my head. Of course I do. Um, He's such a dynamic person. Gosh, he's fun to talk to in any capacity, personal, professional. It doesn't matter. Justin's just such a, such a dynamic individual. Well, and a great person to have in our city too. Like, man, Memphis is so lucky to have a Justin Merrick. I completely agree. And, um, and the conversation, I mean, really the best conversations on Memphis Metropolis are the ones for me personally, where I leave with, you know, new ideas, things to think over. I mean, you're a journalist. I'm not, so you're probably um, accustomed to this. You interview someone and there's a lot of food for thought, things that didn't have, you didn't have room for in the article or, or perspectives you had not thought of. And, and anytime I talk to Justin over any length, um, that's the, that's the outcome. And this interview was no exception. Well, so I made, after I listened to the interview, I made a bunch of notes of things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and the first one was um, Center for Transforming Communities Use of the Arts in their community organizing engagement. Because, you know, you and I have been, I mean, both professionally and, and personally, you and I have been in a lot of community meetings, you know, public meetings, focus groups, and and it's a you know it's a challenge to keep them to keep them engaging and of course the idea of using arts in that context is not all that innovative necessarily but to the extent they're incorporating that into the meat yeah. of the work just talk about that a little bit and your your reflections on that cuz that really blew me away in a very positive way what really stands out to me is thinking about who we are as a humanity, right? And how we got to where we are. So when you think back, um, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, when we were finally getting our, getting our collective uh, mess together and starting to, um, you know, gather and form societies and civilizations and stuff in a hundred thousand years isn't exactly a thing. So please no other anthropologists don't come for me. I know that that's not the exact date, but you get my point a long time ago, right? This incorporation of what we now call the arts was just what we did. We told stories, oral traditions, we sang songs, we drummed, we chanted, we, we, um, performed poems and skits for one another, right? This was the meeting. The whole point of the meeting was this bonding, relationship building, 
And we do that and have historically always done that through the arts. I mean, the arts, quote unquote, is is as old as humanity itself. In my opinion, it's one of the core foundations of what makes humanity. It makes us this supposedly, you know, quote unquote, higher level being is the fact that we produce, communicate, uh, and tell our own histories through arts, right? And so to me, it's, if you really want to truly build relationships and build community tribe, right? Tribes and clans of people, the arts just makes absolute fundamental sense to me and truly incorporating it to the level to which they incorporate it is the way to go. It's basically like turning every meeting into what we have done for millennia, which is to sit around and bond through art, so, you know, this is why I'm happy Memphis Metropolis has an in-house anthropologist, <laughs> because that's, you're right. I mean, um, we've got so far away from through it, history right? before the, and before the written word and even after the written word. Yeah, right. That was that was the meeting that right. was so we've gotten today. We're like so far away from that with these dry meetings that we've gotten so accustomed to, right. Where it just makes today we're like, Oh, well the way you hold a meeting is you come in and someone's the note taker or the secretary and they take the notes, they read the minutes from the last time and you go through the minutes and you approve them. And then you have the current meeting and everybody goes turn by turn and talks about their own little section of thing that they're doing. And then we write all that down and then we put it in a file somewhere and it gets emailed out and no one ever looks at it again and that's we've just all accepted that as how it how it is and it's true that that's typically how it is now but that's such a blip in our history as humans that that's how we've been doing it right they're getting back to how we've always done things well yeah that's how history was i mean here's what happened last week it was a picture Right. Um, right. And or a poem, a bard would run around and tell people what happened. The town crier who would go from place to place and tell these stories around campfires and around hearths. And yeah, I mean, we've always done it through storytelling, through song. It's much easier. Our brains love song. It's easier for our brains to remember things when we put them in song. So, you know, that's been just ubiquitous with humanity for eons at this point. We sing songs to celebrate, to mourn, to work, to play. I mean, to sleep. We have songs around everything, right? Well, how does how do we get back to that? I mean, next time I have to do a committee report at a meeting, should I use interpretive <laughs> interpretive dance? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I mean, seriously, you know, so is one thing I thought about, right, as I was um, listening to your conversation with Justin was, you know, when we talk about neighborhoods and neighborhood histories and there are so many stories that get lost. Right. So what if every meeting that was a community based meeting, a neighborhood based meeting, any sort of meeting that had any component of community what if that meeting just started with a story? Somebody who has a personal story or an interesting piece of lore or history or whatever told it at the beginning and somebody wrote it down or recorded it. And what if that then got collected into a book or into a performance? I mean, that's it's an easy way to, to remember and to stop losing all of these pieces of us that we lose to time, right? Well, and I think that what you're getting at also, and Justin's 
these were not his words, but you know, the stories really are the work. It's not something you just sort of check off on your way to approving the minutes. It right. is it is the work, it's the foundation of whatever you want to try to accomplish. Yeah, it is. And you know, that's, that's true for anthropology. I mean, anthropology is nothing, you know, I joke and say it's nothing. I'm just a glorified people watcher, but really I'm a glorified people watcher and storyteller because ultimately that's all the social scientists or social scientists root down to. If you can't tell the story, then what good is watching and observing? Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement. The story is the work. Same thing with journalism, obviously. <laughs> the story's the work, right? Right. So shifting gears, another thing that I want to lift up that Justin talked about was their work around, you know, aligning the interests and agendas of residents with, you know, the quote unquote power brokers, influencers, you know, in community meetings of all kinds, those those discussions can they can be a source of tension or people can just be there could be things that just aren't said and so you're not really and so they're they're you know with through skilled facilitation bringing people together and having some of these hard conversations um and i was impressed by that yeah i think you know a lot of it is capacity building in as far as Okay, so we operate very top down as a society, banks, uh, foundations, boards, uh, city council, whatever, right? These, these groups sit. And if you are the resident and you want or need something, it's expected that you come to them, that you be able to speak their language, that you be able to advocate in their house. You got to go to their court. And you got to play on their terms and you got to play with their language. And even to the point of things like, you know, you got to know where they post stuff. You got to know you it's on you. And so it's capacity building is such a key component where, you know, to train essentially residents to play in these other spaces. And then the real work, the real equity work, right, is where you get to where these other people don't think that. Uh, everybody's got to come to them, right? And so that's really the key thing that I think is so fascinating is you're not just building the capacity for residents and then taking the residents to their court and saying, learn how to play in their house. You're saying everyone's coming together here and we're going to have some really hard conversations and we're not going to assume that because you're the organization and you've been around a long time and you've done the work that you are the expert and the only expert in this room. We're all going to come together democratically. And that's what's really cool to me. Well, and also the, um, Justin talked about the need for all stakeholders to acknowledge on the front end that there's, you know, these neighborhoods have suffered from trauma and there needs to be healing. And that's got to be acknowledged. It's got to be dealt with. There's got to be, you know, healing activities, work on healing. That's got to happen. And, um, and these, you know, the, the, that's part of the process and the, and everyone's got to buy into that. And again, not just pay lip service to it, but, um, 
Yeah. I'm committed to doing that part of the work. And the key word there is everyone, right? It's not just the responsibility of the injured to step up and say, I want healing and I'm going to work for it. It's got to be everybody involved. The person who did the injuring and by person entity history. I mean, it's, it's so you can't parse any one thing apart at this point when we're talking about really deep equity work, you've got 400 years of really, really um, complex and interwoven um, injustices and oppressions and violence and all of this other stuff. Right. But you ultimately, everybody's got to come together. Yes. So the last thing I wanted to bring up was, of course, you know, the, the theme of the show was the effect of COVID on community organizing community. And of course we ended up talking about a lot of things because he just had a lot of interesting things to say, but, uh, you know, in, ta- in terms of talking about COVID and the, the impact of COVID, you know, there was a big conversation about technology. And of course, you and I have talked a lot over the years and before we knew each other about, you know, the digital divide. There's a lot of emphasis nationally on um, bringing broadband widely to, you know, 100% of the nation. And of course, I, I um, embrace that. But Justin reminded us how, you know, we're imposing these sort of middle class ideas about how people communicate. So everyone, we need to give everyone the tools they need so they can communicate like us. I'm, I'm gen- simplifying right. a little bit. Yeah. As opposed to we need to give everyone access to the tools, all of the tools so that they can then choose the way that best uh, works for them to communicate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, and again, I'm going to say this is us forgetting to some extent our roots, right? People, we know this not just from history and, you know, all of human evolution, but we also know this from marketing, from journalism outreach, from sales, from literally anything. Uh, The library, even everybody knows that um, it's word of mouth is how people get their information. And maybe they hear about something through one way, but they're going to go to a trusted source, an individual that they know and trust to answer questions about that product they want to buy or about that program they want to send their kid to or whatever the case may be. Ultimately, we as human beings prefer word of mouth. We prefer low tech forms of communication when we're making decisions or when we want trusted information. And so, you know, again, Imposing, like you said, imposing these sort of middle class technology as the superior way to communicate, I would say, I would argue, is kind of antithetical to who we are as people. And these lower tech ways, text messages and face to face door to door communication is much more in line with who we are and how we got here and is is more comforting to our brains. We like those things to interact face to face with another human being. Well, and the the, the and Justin's the, point, I'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but Justin's point, I think, is particularly when it comes to black and brown communities, uh, you know, those not just word of mouth communication, but face to face interaction and this relational, very relational uh, forms of information sharing is like core to the communities. Well, and 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 and, and my learning from that is we need to be 
continuing to invest in that as well. We need to invest in the technology so no one is left behind, but we also need to invest in community organizers. We need to invest in organizations that are putting on the neighborhood picnics. And all of those things um, are equally worthy of investment and a lot cheaper, by the way. Um, And um, so so it shouldn't be either or. Um, we need to have both and we need to honor how neighborhoods want to communicate with yes. each other. Yes, exactly. And I'll say another good, in addition to CTC and their work during the pandemic, I would also uh, lift up Juice Orange Mound. And so Juice was already pre-pandemic planning to do this uh, sort of zone uh, this zoned approach to communication where you've got a couple, you take orange mound, you break it up into, I think six zones might be seven and you assign like two zone captains for each one. And then it sort of trickles down where you've got zone captains and street captains who are responsible for disseminating information through the entirety of orange mound word of mouth. Right. But when COVID happened, they really kicked it into high gear. They got everything situated. They started doing a text message chain to ask individual neighbors, what do you individually need? Tell me what you individually need and put together this entire caravan, like C-A-R-E, caravan uh, situation with, I mean, I we wrote about it for High Ground and I mean, it was just profound watching this long caravan of cars deliver door to door, individually personalized care packages and every bit of it was done word of mouth and via text message. And that's, that's an, that's an incredible example. It was Thank an incredible you for mentioning that. Yeah. Yep. I mean, they just really brought this idea of communicating the way a neighborhood wants to be communicated with, particularly because they have a lot of seniors in that neighborhood, uh, right. that the neighborhood can and wants to be communicated with. They really brought that to a shining example with those caravan, um, initiatives that they did. Okay. Okay. Well, Cole, sadly, we're out of time, but thanks again for joining me to sort of digest and reflect on um, a really great interview with with Justin um, from Center for Transforming Communities. But who I've been talking to now is Cole Bradley. Cole's one of our regular commentators. And Cole, thanks for coming on Memphis Metropolis, as always. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for having me. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. Thank you.